0: That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome back to the Napoleon Assist. If you didn't hear the smile in my voice, Hear it now, folks, because this is a, an episode that I have hotly anticipated and hugely look forward to for a heck of a long time. I have what I think we can safely describe as a crowd favourite in the room with me today. They are smiling and laughing in a, in a very um, sort of embarrassed fashion, but that praise is absolutely deserved. I'm joined by the author of The Magisterial, The Napoleonic Wars, A Global History, published by Oxford University Press, Confronting Napoleon, Volume One and Two, published by Helium, the Professor of History at Louisiana State University in Shreveport, and Ruth herring Noel Endowed Chair for the Curatorship of the James smith Noel Collection. Yes, folks, at long last it's happened. We have the mighty Alexander Mikuburidzi for a standalone interview On the topic that you've all been waiting for, that brilliant biography of Kutuzov has dropped. You can get it right now. I'm going to stick a link in the show description. Go buy it. Uh, It's subtitled A Life in War and Peace because, let's be honest, we're not going to get through this without having quite a discussion about Tolstoy along the way. Alex, welcome to your first standalone episode. Apologies it's taken so long. How are you doing?
1: Wow. <laughs> first of all, <laughs> uh, your listeners should know that I'm, I'm uh, burning out here. <laughs> I'm, I'm blushing. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, overly generous introduction. Uh, I'm delighted to be back. Uh, I love our first discussion and it is truly a, a treat um, to be invited back i guess i did something
0: right Uh, did something right he says with books like that and his contributions (laughs) to previous episodes this guy humble on top of everything else um his eyes his his eyes his ears are absolutely burning um from the yes they are (laughs) you know what i'm not even sorry um praise where it's deserved and all of that (laughs) we're gonna we're gonna dive straight in um because we need to, let's be honest, we, we've got a lot to cover. Um, we're going to start with popular perception, I think, because we sort of alluded to this, I think, a little while back when we are talking about um, Russian commanders. When it comes to Kutuzov, I struggle to shake this sort of chicken at Borodino image. Um, I have that almost Brian Cox-esque figure in my mind, and I think that's probably because Brian Cox played Kutuzov in the uh, BBC version of War and Peace fairly recently. So what would you say is the common perception of the guy? Because this is something that's changed as well, I gather. Um, And people sort of tried to, particularly when it comes to Kutuzov, they tried to manipulate him depending on political agenda. And it's been fascinating to read up on this. That you know, at one point he's sort of heroic um, figure. Well, in fact, for a lot of it, he's a heroic figure within Russia. But it's kind of, at one point they try and make out that he's, man of the person, sort of peasant general type thing, because the of the communist influence. So un, unpick this horrific yeah. mess yeah, uh for true. us of pop, popular perception. How has it changed? Where do you think we, we were sort of at before your book came out?
1: Thank you so much. Um I actually I love uh Brian Cox's uh performance as, as Kutuzov. Um I think the the sense of character is there. He's you know the way he looks, the way he glares is there. So I, I really, I really like that. Um, uh, certainly more than some of the classical kind of Soviet uh, era film productions um, that tend to be, to me at least, a little bit wooden. Kutuzov, um, and then one of the key reasons I, I wanted to write this book um, is, first of all, the dearth of uh, studies on the Russian side of the Napoleonic wars. Um, here we have an army that ultimately prevails and wins, and yet uh, its leaders are woefully uh, ignored. Uh, all these years, we only have one decent biography of the Russian general, uh, and that is Josselson's uh, uh, biography of Barclay de Tolly, and even that one is already 40 years old. Uh, we didn't have the decent biography of Alexander until just a few years when uh, the great, my, my great uh, colleague in, in France, uh, Marie-Pierre, uh, published one, and, and it's now available in English and French. Uh, but, um, but Kutuzov is a, is a kind of a glaring omission here. I mean, probably the most iconic of the Russian generals of this entire period, um, and, and yet largely ignored. The only biography that exists of him uh, in English, or existed until uh, until now, uh, was written by uh, a old Trade, a, a guy by the name of Parkinson, who who's written quite a few books on Napoleon on Napoleonic Wars, but they have the same problem of factual mistakes. In fact, if you look at kind of my footnotes, I every so often kind of point out things that Parkinson just invents. Um, so that's one problem, and it's kind of historiographic. But second, and I think more more broadly, it's the phenomenon um, of history making that I, w- I wanted to to explore. Because you know, you you've looked at Napoleonic wars extensively, and you know that on on all sides we're involved with um, myth making. We we all deal with Napoleonic legend. That's pervasive, right? The most pervasive of all of these myths. But alongside we have the myth of Wellington, right? We have the myth of the British Army. And of course, we also have this myth of Russian army, with with especially this Kutuzovian myth, that is, uh, you know, well, uh, strong and well and, and, and ongoing. And unlike Napoleonic legend, which is largely the kind of the crafting, the creation of Napoleon himself, and then subsequent generation of people who perceived him, him to be something that he wanted, wanted them to see. Kutuzovian myth to me is interesting is because it is made by the government, right, with this particular agenda, to you know, kind of axe to crime. And especially during the Soviet period when Stalin was very keen to justify his own mistakes, right, the Soviet dictator, uh, during the World War II when the Soviet army uh, began the war, catastrophically so, and, and factually brought the German forces to the outskirts of Moscow. Stalin's way of justifying it to the public and kind of creating this narrative was by saying, hey, this was not just a mistake. It was not just a happenstance. This was part of a careful strategy. And if you don't trust me, look, I'm being inspired by Kutuzov and his strategy of 1812. Uh, And so Kutuzov became larger than life. Uh, it, It is astonishing how the historical figure with all words kind of, you know, complexities that makes humans such an interesting phenomenon to so study. All that was wash, whitewashed. and Instead, we are presented this glorious figure of unmovable general <laughs> right, who has a vision and pursues it. And of course, the third element, and this is what you alluded to at the beginning of it, Zach, and that is uh, Kutuzov is one of those historical figures who's benefited from being uh, a, 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 a literary figure like Cromwell. I mean, today I saw the news that uh, Dame Mantel has, uh, 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 to me, shockingly passed away. But think what she has done to Thomas Cromwell, um, single handedly, right? <laughs> single handedly revived his <laughs> historical memory. And that's what Tolstoy does, really, to Kutuzov, uh, because Kutuzov, before Tolstoy, is a figure that is divisive it's it's a lot of people didn't look at him as that historic figure and Kutuzov creates his own vision of him that takes and supplants historical truth um which and I, I'm, I'm I find that interesting and and then kind of at the end of the book I I know that uh to in many respects no matter the fact that I've wrote this long book about Kutuzov I think ultimately it will fail to, supplant the Tolstoyan vision that Tolstoy's is is, is is you know that that view of him uh of, of Kutuzov will will stay so strong part of history but part of literature
0: what do you honestly think you're doing Alex coming in with your facts and trying to educate people <laughs> <laughs> this stuff can't be tolerated surely yeah. Yeah, surely don't... you know this by now yeah. um yeah. It's worth saying Tolstoy's got an axe to grind. Um, for the folks who aren't familiar, and I only um, realized this when I was doing some prep for this episode, the Tolstoys inherit the Q2Zovian, the that's not a word to say when you're drunk, is it? The yeah. Q2Zovian uh, estate. Is that, is that right?
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, n- uh, not directly Leo's uh, line, but um, what happens is that Kutuzov's oldest daughter gets married into the Tolstoy family. Uh, and it's a prominent, well connected uh, family. So, uh, in fact, later on, since Kutuzov dies without children, uh, it is Tolstoy, his, his grandson on the Tolstoy uh, line, that is allowed by Emperor Alexander to inherit all of his titles and estates. Uh, so yes, there's a very close relationship in, in that sense between the writer uh, and and the larger family that he belongs to um, absolutely
0: and and he is you know if you like the the Victor Hugo of the <laughs> Napoleon's 1812 invasion. Um, Perhaps there's a need for a whole episode just devoted to... Although
1: I'll take an umbrance at that. Uh, Tolstoy, Hugo takes too many liberties, especially with, <laughs> <laughs> with his uh, Waterloo. Uh, Kutuzov is for, uh, oh, sorry, uh, Tolstoy is far better historian <laughs> in that sense. <laughs> uh, uh, Tolstoy, of course, famously visits the places. He spends several days at Borodino. He studies memoir literature. He's actually well well versed in historiographic debates of the time. Uh, we might not agree with his historical philosophical uh, view of history, but I think as a as a writer historian, he's better than Hugo. <laughs> <laughs> to it be said, this is context, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, but, but let's be honest. Hugo sets them are pretty low. <laughs> <laughs> with with all the love in the world for Lemes, <laughs> exceptional book, blinding musical, not a work of history. But let us move on from that. We're not here to discuss Hugo. Um, we are here to discuss Kutuzov, and we should probably strip this back to origins. And yes, folks, I'm gonna drag you kicking and screaming into the pre-Napoleonic age with this one. Where does Kutuzov come from? And talk us through sort of that early phase of his life, if you, if you like, what we know about his life pre-war.
1: Um, we, we, we know quite a bit. Um, uh, we know that he belonged to a nobility and that's a very good starting point for anyone in the 18th century. Um, uh, it meant that he was born into a family that could afford giving him education. In fact, his father was a, an eminent uh, Russian engineer, um, a military engineer who retired with the rank of lieutenant general, a very capable guy. Uh, his father uh, um, nicknamed uh, the wise book for his diverse kind of interests and, and and knowledge. And, um, and in the book I point out that his father understood that the means to edification, personal edification, is education. And that he certainly made sure through uh, personally and through tutors that his oldest son, which is Kutuzov, received all, all, all the essentials. And then the way Russian system worked at the time was that the children of nobles at the age of seven had to be brought for registration with authorities. And there would be uh, they would be evaluated, kind of registered, make sure that they're all, you know, everything is legitimate. And then five years later, at 12, they would effectively show up for, uh, for uh, if they wanted to get into the military educational institution. And that's the path Kutuzov follows. At the age of 12, uh, he's enrolled in a very good school. In that sense, I kind of follow the trajectory. I think I find similarities with Napoleon's. Right. Uh, also uh, you know, born into a noble family, but more of a you know, middling family, uh, it comes from provinces. Right. Uh, his, his father, in both cases, fathers play a very important role in making sure that the kids get education. And then they get into the school and receive decent military education. Kutuzov um, distinguished himself early on. I mean, he's accepted to school at the age of 12. When they test him, he shows uh, great skill in, in math. Uh, engineering and, and other subjects. So he's actually allowed to tutor uh, younger cadets, uh, which, which is a testament, I think, to his maturity and and, and skill. And then he finishes school um, instead of three years that we were usually required. He does it in, in less than two. Again, another comparison to Napoleon, who also does a similar thing. And then uh, right off uh, of the badge, uh, when he finishes in 1762, he starts his career as an uh, aide-de-camp to a, a senior member of the royal family. So also a, a kind of a nice starting point. A young guy, right, well, he's in 1762, he's uh, barely 15. Uh, to start a career as, a, as an adjutant to a general um, is, a, is a good position. Um, but of course, 1762 is a crucial moment in Russian history. That's the time when seven years of war is raging, uh, Elizabeth, Empress Elizabeth, has just died in the start of the year. The new emperor Peter III is erratic, uh, um, crusophile, right? Drops a lot of people the wrong way. And six what? Uh, le- you know, six months later, in July of a seventeen sixty-two, he has an accident, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, and uh, by uh, his wife Catherine inherits power. And so Kutuzov lives through all of this. In fact, what is interesting to me is that as a young age, at this just 15 years old, he's involved in, in one of the great initiatives that Catherine came up with at the start of her reign, and that is kind of larger reform uh, of the empire, which she entrusted to legislative commission. Uh, and Kutuzov is part of that legislative commission in, in supporting the secretarial uh, capacity. So he, he, he navigates the... The hallways of power as a young kid, um, but uh, that also didn't work out. And so by 1767, uh, he's going to shift shift off to an army, um, and he's he starts a career um, that will spend five decades. Um, and wh- one of the great things, kind of for me to uh, to discover, was that how diverse his career was, because in many cases, you know, in in in, in 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 many ways, when I approached this project, I had one vision of Kutuzov and it it evolved a far more complex picture uh, by the the time I was done. One of the things that really impressed me is the fact that he was involved in in almost every branch of the Russian army and and did so quite well, to give you kind of an an idea. So he starts his his, uh, career aspiring to be, an artillery and, and then becomes an engineer officer, starts his, then becomes staff officer, then is sent to an army as a quartermaster officer. Quickly uh, uh, shows his skills, so he's given the task of organizing from scratch and, and leading uh, infantry units, grenadier units, um, then becomes uh, uh, the man who lays the foundation for light infantry service in Russia, on top of it, he's regularly asked to organize lancer units, uh, light horse uh, units, um, and ultimately he becomes, you know, uh, the divisional and army commander. To me, and in all the years that I've studied, I find I, I still struggle to find another officer who's gone through so many career kind of twists and uh, changes and who's been involved in all of these branches, in all of these different varieties, like Kutuzov did.
0: Yeah, that's quite remarkable and, and really quite unusual as well to have that kind of breadth of service and and understanding yeah, usually you know well. like
1: wellington or napoleon right they stay in the same branch same you know, artillery yeah. or infantry it's it's rare, even within infantry usually it's a regular infantry and rarely dabbling with grenadiers light jagger and all that and and uh, it, it partly it's a reflection of the problems that Russian army is facing and 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 the fundamental problem is the lack of officers. it's it's a problem that they still deal with right to to the present day. Uh, you know a problem of having well-educated experienced men willing to do the job and Kutuzov consistently is the one who, when asked to do something does it and does it well.
0: So talk me through his character a bit more then because, what's coming across is a hugely competent individual. Um, certainly sounds as though he's a highly professional individual as well. In terms of his approach as a commander, what's he like?
1: Um, he is, uh, so uh, as a professional man, he is demanding, very, um, um, you know, uh, holds people accountable. And you see that, um, on many occasions, uh, both, for example, at Austerlitz, right? We we know that Nep- well, Kutuzov was a um, commander, at least formal commander in chief of the Allied armies at Austerlitz, was blamed for it, even though, in the book, I'm arguing um, that uh, it, it sh- it's well worth re- reconsidering that, uh, his role. Uh, but after after Austerlitz, one of the things he did is he investigated numerous cases of. Um, officers skirting their responsibilities, leaving the battlefield. And, and he uh, uh, he was insistent on, on court-martialing people. The um, uh, same applies when he was appointed as the uh, head of the Cadet Corps, which w- was one of the premier institutions of military education in, in Russia at the time. He, you know, he does a, a structural reorganization of this institution, goes through its finances, through its administration, and weeds out problems. So a thing as, as an officer, he is quite capable. Uh, he's demanding. Oh, by the way, uh, in 1809, when uh, he's sent to fight the Turks, I find it interesting that uh, uh, he goes with a fine calm kind of fight to come uh, through the list of recruits that being rejected by the authorities, and he identifies things like because the Russian army needs troops, so he's actually. Uh, is so methodical that he's willing to dig in on why people why recruits are being uh, turned back. And so he, for example, says, well, we are you know if, if a soldier is missing three fingers on the left hand, still send him. <laughs> I, I noticed that you are not sending those. You do need to send them because they still have the good right hand <laughs> and they can still <laughs> do things in the army. So he is you know he he, he has that micromanagerial aspect to it. Um, but there is this other side to him that I think uh, uh, is is more complex, but also difficult, more difficult to grapple with, and that is him as a, as a human being. Um, part of it, I I find charming. He, he's a family man. He has daughters. His only son will die uh, at, at the age of one, so he, he's raising these daughters, and he adores them. He writes this. Lovely letters to them and to his uh, granddaughters, I mean, full of you kind know, of attention, warmth. Always thinks of what gifts he can send to them. But then, then next to that, uh, to that family-loving guy is a party goer, womanizer who can't stop. At the age of uh, what he's sixty in eighteen thirteen, he's sixty-seven, almost sixty-seven. He can't. Um, he, uh, well, yeah, no, no, yeah, that's right. No, 65. Yeah, 65. At the age of 60, he can't stop uh, himself from uh, flirting with 16, 17-year-old girls at the balls. He's famous for, or infamous for um, being accompanied by, this, by women in disguise, uh, common women. This is, uh, I think I need to point this out because, as I try to grapple with his you know kind of his this side of his character I realized that his relationship with women can be divided into two kind of broad categories. one is relationship with those who were on the uh, in social terms of lower standing and he would have relationship with them so at least one officer remarks that for example he had a, a Jewish mistress a common uh, Jewish woman as a mistress that or another one remarks that He had a common uh, peasant girl who was accompanying him uh, disguised as a Cossack. Uh, And and actually, I find it interesting. Another, another, you know, Benningson, one of the generals, complains about Kutuzov being accompanied by this woman. And one of Kutuzov's orderlies uh, has a snarky remark in his memoir saying Benningson didn't know that there were two women. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that in itself is not unique in that we see similar Process in other armies. Right? British army is famous for right officers you know, both being accompanied by their uh, by women or by having this common law and wives wherever they stationed. Of course, in French army, uh, Marshal Andre Massena is infamous for for being accompanied by a young dancer in in disguise. It, it's um, it's the Kutuzov's I think relationship in in eighteen. 18- or 9, 18, 10 in in the Nubian Principalities, what is today Romania, that is most scandalous, where he's accused of kidnapping a a young girl, just 14 years old, um, from from a husband, and effectively having her as a mistress. That part I've I've tried to dig in, and the more I looked at it, the more I find it um, uh, just kind of impossible for him to have done this. It's not that he didn't have the girl with him, the girl was there, but it was presented by the family. Uh, and I think there's a, a wider context of political intrigue where the local uh, families were using w- women as, as to, to kind of observe and and um, get information on. And within that context, I find it a bit problematic with Fukutuzo to have um, a mistress like that, uh, like that girl. If nothing else, he writes back to his family Telling about this girl that he has, and, and the way he describes her is 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 anything but, um how I, sexual or you know kind of you know anything that conveys that sense of liaison. But he he was a womanizer. In fact, you know contemporaries oftentimes times referred to him as a as a uh, one eyed satire. right, you know always always keen you know, chasing. Um, I find also interesting that his wife, um, they, they had this very, open, I think, kind of open relationship because Kutuzov was gone for so long that his wife also was chasing young men. And there is this wonderful memoir that uh, by by uh, a great officer of the Russian army, Voldemar Lovenstern, who uh, describes this scene when Kutuzov's wife asks him to come over for a, for a lunch. And he comes over there, and he realizes he was the only he was the only man there, and Scutuza's wife and her her friends sitting there. And he says they were all ogling me, you know, like looking at me askance. And then he figured out that she was actually telling his friends uh, that she, he was her lover. And Waldemar uh, doesn't appreciate this because he you know he's still unmarried. He still is. <laughs> he, he needs to think of his own. Standing, and he confronts her after the lunch. He says, uh, You know, please don't do this thing anymore. And um, she says, Yeah, yeah. But she continues to invite him to these lunches. This lunch so, <laughs> is <this> a weird dynamic.
0: <laughs> you preempted what was going to be my next question, which was What did she say when he said, Look, can you just not? Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, She's like, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna do it. And then uh, he gets another invitation. <laughs>
0: just to rewind a, a little bit um firstly for those who are wondering well okay so common woman why is that scandalous for could to um be be associating and having relationships with these women um if folks aren't already familiar it, your status was seen as pretty key and so if you were having a relationship with somebody who was of a lower social status to you Actually, in the context of the British army, you could be prosecuted for an un- officer like conduct because you were um, muddying the water in terms of those social distinctions uh, at a time when leadership was associated with class. And there was this perception that if you were born into a certain tier of society, you were born with a certain set of abilities and values. Um, and therefore, they had this perception that the upper classes were born to lead. That was their God given. Um, role on earth so to be mudding those waters would have been hugely scandalous Um, but I'm curious about what you're saying about him as a somebody who's kind of a hard taskmaster. you know he expects the best and he moves across a number of different departments and gets stuck in and the trouble with getting stuck in is that you tend to rub people up the wrong way so does he end up becoming unpopular within certain circles because of this Inclination to check that everything is being done just so.
1: He he does, um, and and he does. Um, I think his unpopularity uh, uh, stemmed from two two factors. So one, as you pointed out, the fact that he um, he can be a straight shooter and and and, and asking people for accountability, uh, and and that um, certainly displeased some, but. To kind of echo your, or to go back to your earlier question about his character and, and to underscore the complexity of his, of, of this man, there is a second side to him that I think created more ill-wishers for him, and that is, um, he's a psychophant. He is, um, is a person who is very eager to f- kind of position himself, uh, um, um, favorably with, with with those who are of higher social or political standing and uh, uh because of that he's frequently accused of being a courtier uh, like in fact one at one at least one person accused of being like courtesan right that is willing to um do whatever it takes to position himself in the position of power and i think the most egregious example of this is happens when he uh, Kutuzo comes back from um, his embassy to Ottoman Empire, which again, underscores this r- uh, remarkable career he had. Here's a, a military man who is sent on a diplomatic mission to one of the key uh, uh, capitals, right, of, 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 of Europe. Um, and he spends a year at the Ottoman Sultan's court. He develops great connections there, uh, and then comes back uh, uh, comes back to St. Petersburg. Uh, and he discovers that by the time he returns that Catherine Empress Catherine has a new lover this young stud uh platon zubov uh, arrogant um uh, a guy I, I love one of the contemporaries said that zubov didn't have necessarily good education but he had this ability to read the book memorize passages and then pass those passages as his own <laughs> so uh, so there was this awkwardness when people would recognize that what he was saying actually was written by somebody else but no one wanted to confront him uh zubov has this um uh, uh knack for uh because he's you know lover to the empress of course people are f- kind of coming to see him for favors and things and he keeps these people waiting in the reception area and then he's occasionally struts out in in nothing but kind of uh, uh, early pyjama, pj's and, and in a kind of be this stark nakedness uh for people to enjoy well, the reason I'm mentioning this is that because Kutuzov scandalized himself by uh, trying to ingratiate himself to Platon Zubov by going there early in the morning to his house, brewing coffee. Right? Turkish coffee is all the rage at this time. And Kutuzov prided on being the best coffee brewer since he spent a year there. And he would serve this coffee to to Zubov in his bed and to that scene of uh, eminent general, uh, Betel-Horan general, um, nobleman, a Russian nobleman from an aristocratic background, humbly standing there brewing the damn coffee and then serving to this uh, time server uh, was something that uh, scandalized contemporaries. And Pushkin famously says that one of the, uh, the symbols of, emas- of, of uh, emasculation of the Russian nobles was, uh, quote, Kutuzov's coffee maker uh, as that symbol of downfall of once this warrior uh elite <laughs> uh to the level of being um, coffee brewers for for the young lovers of the empress, and i think that that's something um is what makes kutuzov less palatable and certainly to me i find that part of his a sacrifice part of him uh quite hard um he Whenever he's away from the power, he, he he's willing to make re- decisions, uh, dis- hard decisions. Mm-hmm. But whenever he's faced to the representatives of the power, especially to the czar, you see that kind of switch when he becomes rather subservient.
0: Does that kind of end up working against him? Because courts politics can turn on a knife edge can't it and you can be in favor one moment and then out of it the next so does does that come back to bite him in the longer term
1: um ultimately no in fact that's i think what um what people marveled about him um there is a wonderful uh, quote from one of the memoirs that uh were uh, actually an officer who knew him well he says whom, whomever Kutuzov suspected of being a rival, right? that Kutuzov, quote, undermined him so imperceptibly as a woodworm devouring his chosen piece of tree. And that image kind of stuck in my head. Kutuzov is a woodworm that slowly digs right through the timber. Uh, he was renowned uh, for being suave, for being very refined, for being a... For being that um, classical um, courtier uh, and um, there is another kind of quote from another officer who says that kutuzov did not just speak and this is a quote he did not just speak but rather he played with his tongue like another mozart or rossini he enchanted listeners and that when i read that part i really wanted to be in that salon or somewhere where kutuzov would would do that, right? <laughs> what it was like. I wanted to see a man who could play with tongue like Mozart, I wanna be there. And I think um, uh, in, a, in another kind of one of my favorites about uh, Kutuzov was, uh, it comes from a French officer, uh, a rather famous one, uh, Langeron, who later commands uh, Russian corps against Napoleon, right? Leads, marches all the way to, to Paris. But Langeron famously says that Kutuzov was surrounded, always surrounded by, but veritable harem of women and men. And he adds, his tent uh, was invariably full of joy and merrymaking. That's where you want to be, Zach. (laughs) I want to ask you this. Was Wellington this fun?
0: <laughs> no, he was not. Um, I, I can emphatically say that now. Um, Wellington I don't think wouldn't even mind Napoleon
1: was this fun. <laughs>
0: this is true. Um, Wellington would, would share his table with you, but the mood at that table would be completely dependent on what the latest news was. There there wouldn't have been you know wild parties under Wellington's. Well, sure, occasionally you get parties, but it's more the officer call that have the the reputation for the wild Party, certainly not uh, the generals.
1: And, you know, with Wellington, it always reminds me of that description of his laugh that uh, it sounded like a horse. <laughs> <someday>. <laughs> uh, I need to remember the precise description of it, but it was an unusual laugh that, uh, that the contemporaries remarked about.
0: Yeah, like a, a horse braying, I think it is. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah that's like
1: right. <like>. <Braying>. <laughs> Yeah,
0: but you. I mean, look at Wellington. You can kind of see it. Read his letters, and you can kind of hear it. It doesn't kind of come as a particular surprise. It certainly didn't come to me as a particular surprise when I read about that. Um, we've talked a little bit about his Kutuzovs. This is just to yes. bring it back on on topic. Um, his career pre Napoleonic Wars. Let's, let's just talk about kind of the revolutionary inverted commas period before we talk about the, 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 the stuff prior to 1812 that falls within the Napoleonic um, sphere. So what does he end up doing over that period? And, and bear in mind, let's bear in mind for listeners, you know, this guy's kind of getting on a, a little bit. He's kind of that, that mid-stage career, mid-stage life by the time that these wars are breaking out.
1: Yes, uh, and and he's and he's uh, he's riding high. Um, in, in that uh, he was already he already has made his name as a as a talented officer and general during the Russia's wars against uh, Poland uh, in seventeen sixties, and then especially against the Ottoman Turks in seventeen seventies, and then again in seventeen nineties. By seventeen ninety one, you know when revolution is already underway in France, and, and it is got to, to to threaten the rest of Europe, Kutuzov is considered one of the best uh, general officers in the Russian army. He's just distinguished himself in the in the decisive victory over Turks at Machin in what is uh, today uh, I guess Romania, and um, uh, you know he you know he his standing is underscored by the fact that uh, Emperor Paul. Is uh, inviting him to uh, to dinners. Uh, I've looked through the uh, the uh, court journals to see because the court journals accounted uh, for daily activities, daily events, who came, who went, how many parties, and all. And Kutuzov is a constant feature uh, fixture at these at these luncheons and dinners. Luncheons were a bit larger affair; dinner was a smaller one. And, you know, Paul really en- enjoys um, dealing with it. In fact, well, that's one of the things that I kind of historical myth that I wanted to dismantle was that uh, for a long time, Russian historians were arguing that you know, Kutuzov was the, you know, the, he represented the Russian way of war. And that uh, Paul, when his file aspirations clashed with Kutuzov and Kutuzov was disgraced and he was kind of persecuted. The reality is is, is not. That in fact the relationship was was very close. Uh, uh, Paul enjoyed conversing with with, uh, with the general. In fact, to the degree that he would, add, you know, he offered Kutuzov to come over and use his personal library so they could read the same book and, and books and, and discuss. Um, uh, Kutuzov, being this archetypal kind of Russian nobleman, in that sense, um, even even though he, I I, I devoted a chapter to him describing him as an enlightened military philosopher, Kutuzov found it very hard to accept revolutionary change. I'm not surprised there, right? He's a byproduct of his social milieu. He is the reflection of the Russian elite and and with all of the social cultural baggage. So the fact that he condemns revolution is not surprising. The fact that he is very keen on confronting Revolutionary changes in Poland, for example, in 1790s is also not surprising when any revival of the Polish state was a threat, not just to Russian Empire side, but to Kutuzov's bottom line. Because after the crushing of the Polish, uh, um, uh, you know, the first and second partitions of Poland, Kutuzov was on the receiving end of vast tracts of land, thousands of serfs. So, any, any possibility of Poland making a comeback would have, would have uh, posed a threat to his livelihood. Um, so, that's why he's keen on maintaining what I would say, you know, again, kind of modern usage, conservative uh, order of the day. It benefited him. He was part of that uh, privileged status. Um, but Paul's assassination in 1801 is the turning point for him. Because unlike Paul, with whom he had a good relations, Kutuzov uh, never was able to develop similar relations with uh, his son, with Alexander. And and that's going to be a red thread through his entire career.
0: Is there a, a sense of ideological motivation then behind his career at any point? Or is this more about duty? At, well, I suppose in, in one sense, duty is a form of ideological motivation. But does is there any kind of sense of a particular zeal behind what he's doing because of that sense of being invested in the fabric of R- russian society
1: yeah i think so uh, and, um, you you feel it in his orders in his letters in his correspondence you feel this kind of again conservative streak and, um, and that is that, that it will be more surprising to all you know, if he if he hadn't won of course, he's a uh, he's a uh, devout Christian, an Orthodox Christian. He that faith certainly permits uh, every many of the things he does. <laughs> Maybe not the women part uh, and then the merry making part, but <laughs> the rest of it, uh, it, it, it is. Um, and he certainly looked at the revolution, uh, a, as it was unfolding in France as 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 a profound threat, especially in seventeen ninety two, ninety well ninety three, ninety four. He is in the Ottoman Empire where he's competing with the French embassy, with French diplomats to contain the spread of what he derisively referred to as Jacobinism, right? These radical ideas of equality and all. Um, <clears throat> but having said that, I do want to point one thing. When, Nepo- when Coutuzzo confronts Napoleon in 1812 and, and you know, in, in his winning, right? In the second half of the 1812 campaign, I see him also as a very pragmatic man because, uh, in you know, I devote the last couple of chapters of the book uh, showing that in many respects Kutuzov is, um, he, he, you know, is is keen on letting Napoleon leave Russia um, relatively unscathed because he looks down the road towards the larger uh, strategic, I would even say, geopolitical uh, consequences of this failed campaign in Russia. Uh, and what he's worried, what Kutuzov is worried profoundly is that, uh, is that uh, Napoleon's downfall, collapse of the Napoleonic empire will be ultimately a source of new period of turmoil, uh, new period of restructuring reorganization, and that ultimately it will not be of benefit to Russia, but will be of benefit to Britain. And here, time and again, he responds to this urgent request for kind of uh, to, to attack Napoleon or to, to, to bring the army to bear on, on, his, on the remnants of the Grand Army by saying that this is not in our interests, that we already defeated Napoleon. We already inflicted serious harm on him. His total collapse is not what we want. Uh, and, and that is, shows, uh, I think, his ability to distance from this ideological um, perspective and, and look at the practical um, side of things.
0: That's fascinating. We were going to leave the 1812 campaign to a little later, but I, I've got to follow up on that. That's just too much of a uh, a juicy worm on a hook that you, you've dangled in front of me there. Um, so planning can go out the window. We have to ask, how is that received amongst others within court by Tsar Alexander? Because everybody's got their own. Worldviews here. Um, There's there's a lot of emotion in the air. Bearing in mind what the country has experienced following Napoleon's invasion, so this idea of restraint probably doesn't Mm -hmm. fall particularly well on certain ears.
1: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I I wouldn't say. I would even say not just certain, but most ears. Um, And I think this is where you see Kutuzov, the courtier, Kutuzov, the politician. Um, being at the right place at the right moment, because he is not the only one that um, to advocates uh, <clears throat> this policy. most famously, his predecessor as a commander uh, of the Russian army uh, has done so. Of course, Barkay de Tolly is the man in question. Um, you know, the Russian strategy of retreat, the Russian strategy of avoidance of uh, the battle and not giving Napoleon what he wants, and that is the Decisive engagement is the, is the reflection of Barclay de Tolly's conviction that the war that they need to fight against Napoleon should be asymmetrical, should be protracted, should be far longer duration than what Napoleon or the Russian government wants. But we also know that Barclay de Tolly was ousted, effectively removed from power because of the vast public and military resistance to his policy. And Kutuzov knows that, absolutely, right? He follows all of this. And so what he does is, therefore, is he plays a a, 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 a double game. Publicly, he talks about the need to confront Napoleon. Publicly, he wants to, you know, assure the public that if he, you know, when he takes charge, he will fight and make stand and do all all the things to protect the Russian cities and, and, and villages. But then when he actually gets to the army, what do we see is his kind of slow, methodical retreat. His decision to give up Moscow, to me, is a masterstroke, a strategic masterstroke, for which Barclay de Tolly, I think, would have been shot, would have been killed. He would have been, I mean, I cannot even imagine what would have happened to Barclay if he had dared, while commander-in-chief to suggest that, or done that. And yet Kutuzov did it, and the public actually went along with him because again, that perception of him, uh, of, a, of a true Russian, of a nobleman and, and everything that he has done to assure the public of that image is, 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 is brilliant. Um, his relationship with Alexander, Emperor Alexander in 1812 is, is, is much harder to, or which was more, com- more, more complex. Alexander didn't want him to be commander in chief. Um, and then in the book I explain uh, that it is only at the last moment that he effectively is forced to accept him as such. There is a fascinating scene uh, in August when Kutuzov goes to see Alexander to receive this confirmation as a commander-in-chief. Alex you know, says, okay, you are it, You know, go and take the army. And then as Kutuzov leaves the room, uh, Alex turns, closes this door, and turns and tells his ADC who stands there, and, and this is a quote, and he tells him, the public wants disappointment. So I pointed him. As for myself, I wash my hands of it all. That's the, stark, the kind of startling say thing to say for uh, an all-powerful autocrat of Russia. You just send a uh, man to take charge of the war effort, and he says, ah, screw it. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I wash my hands of it all. What, what the hell?
0: <laughs> wow. Um do we say that with a pinch of salt or no is, no um, is that you know is yeah, that fair? That's... Because I mean you say yourself, this this guy's an autocrat, this is autocratic Russia, and it's not even, you know, late nineteenth, early twentieth century autocratic Russia. It's
1: yeah.
0: you know, it's <laughs> turn of the yeah. start of the nineteenth century autocratic Russia. This is a guy who can do what he wants on a whim, and yet he's mm-hmm. listening to popular opinion in that appointment is that a a fair assessment
1: absolutely um because um so when the committee so in august he formed a special commission to choose the replacement for barco and the commissions met in 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 late august they they spent our entire evening and late into the night uh trying to figure out who who might be the best candidate um so they agreed, Barclay de Tolly cannot stay, and so they looked at various candidates, and you know that included senior uh, generals in the Russian army, but also abroad. For example, um, they knew that um, Alexander wanted to get Wellington um, to to lead the uh, Russian army, but they also understood uh, the logistical, if not political, challenges of bringing Wellington from, from Spain. Uh, They knew about uh, Alexander's choice for Jean Moreau, the great uh, rival of Napoleon, who was at the the time in exile in the United States. Ultimately, as we know, Moreau will return, but he will only join the Russian army in 1813. Um, They also considered uh, the former French Marshal, uh, uh, now Crown Prince of Sweden, uh, Bernadotte. But again, they understood the challenges. So ultimately, in fact, what they do is they go through list and kind of strike everyone out, and literally the last one, all right, is 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 Kutuzov, and they can't avoid him, or they can't just simply ignore him, because he is the last, he is the most senior active general in the Russian army. Uh, he just, and this is the crucial, I think, part that oftentimes is forgotten, he is the one who won the damn war. In fact, he the only. Uh, senior ranking Russian officer at this time who's actually won an entire war <laughs> and just recently against the Turks um, and public knows about this. So they clamor all, for all of it. So they finally said, OK, maybe we should tell Alex about Kutuzov and they choose an active uh, minister of war to, to deliver the message. And I love this description where one uh, Alexander's uh, personal ADC uh, stands at the office. Um, at the office of of the emperor, and he sees this guy uh, come over. Uh, The the guy named Gorchakov, this active minister of war. And so he asks, hey, what's going on? And Gorchakov tells him this quote, I have a terrible task to perform. And the ADC is like, what's going on? And so he tells, well, imagine my my position where I have to make the all-powerful autocrat, as you pointed out, do something that he doesn't want to do. <laughs> and so the ADC is like, Ooh, this is going to be good. <laughs> so he stands there, waits, and there's this long kind of rumbling behind the door. And then the door opens and the ADC describes this minister coming out. And he says, his face, this is a quote, his face was red as if on fire. And so of course the ADC runs over and says, what's going on? And the minister and it catches the breath and he then tells what happened and he says imagine and this is i love that part when he said imagine of the audaciousness of what we have just done we flat out told his majesty that people wanted kutuzov and that's the only appropriate way for him to act is to give people what he wants oh man i love that part
0: <laughs> to have been a fly on that wall wow um it's it's actually you couldn't get away with that with certain individuals, not just in Russian history, in in history in general. That's that's staggering.
1: So um, I imagine Alex was stewing over all of this. I mean, mm-hmm. I imagine. I mean, I, I'm not surprised that when he actually met with him, he's like, "Damn it, they made me do it." <laughs>
0: right? Wow! <laughs> wow! Um, I, <laughs> I'm still stunned by this. Um, we will come back to 1812 because we were kind of doing a, a thing of kind of building through his career. And before we talk about the strategies deployed in 1812, which is what I really want to get onto next, uh, we need to talk about the context of those strategies, which is, of course, to look at that Napoleonic phase of the French Revolutionary Napoleonic Wars. And you alluded to this earlier, that nominally he's in command at uh, Austerlitz. Um as Jimmy Chen um, made a a rather amusing comment that that always sticks with me, he says that um, effectively Napoleon was was facing morons at Auslitz, which which is harsh, (laughs) but um, there's a kernel of truth in there somewhere. I'll I'll let our listeners decide quite how big that grain of truth is um, for themselves. So how much does he learn? And this sounds like a dumb question, but it shouldn't be a given that just because you fight Napoleon, you therefore learn what does and doesn't work when facing him. So how much does he learn from that experience and how much of that impacts on what he later does during the 1812
1: campaign? Uh, to echo what Jimmy said, I think we will use that famous expression of lions led by morons. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I think that's appropriate for 1805. <laughs> Russian soldiers performed well. Uh, the the heroism was there, but um, the morons were in charge. <laughs> um, well, let me let me deal with this uh, uh, this way. Um, Kutuzov uh, studied Napoleon very closely. In fact, you see that in his letters, in his conversations, he tells, for example, captured officers, French officers, that. He spent some time examining Napoleon's career, his campaigns. So here I see him as a student of military history. In fact, it helps certainly that when he was the director of the cadet corps, uh, Kutuzov read a series of lectures on military history and sort of like recent uh, military history in which he incorporated his own experiences. Um, and he has um, utmost respect for Napoleon. And I, that's I think maybe he's, May, may may sound surprising, but he absolutely respects him. In fact, in the book, I I recount a, a scene when, on one of the occasions, uh, one of his officers, staff officers, berated Napoleon, and uh, Kutuzov uh, snapped back and told uh, told the officer to shut up, uh, because you know he, he tells him, "How dare you to to criticize the greatest captain of this age?" And then and, and there is this certain respect, uh, a clear respect that Kutuzov has for Napoleon. And that is respect that comes from the fact that he faced him on, on the battlefield in 1805 and that he knew also how if, how more flexible, more efficient uh, French military machine is. I mean, he's seen that, uh, not just on Australis, but in all the um, uh, 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 compa- you know, the campaign leading up to it. In fact, if, if, if there is anything that really s- stuck with uh, uh, Kutuzov after 1805 was the operational flexibility of the French army, uh, which is what later on in 1812 he' constantly fretting this, this ability for the point to rapidly unfold, you know deploy his corps, move and flank. Um, when 18, so but in 1805, when he successfully Kutuzov successfully uh, uh, withdrew the army to the safety of Olmut's fortress, Uh, even then we see that uh, Kutuzov was already thinking how to confront Napoleonic threat. And for him, the the confrontation would be um, asymmetrical. Don't give Napoleon what he wants, that's the decisive battle. Uh, It needs to be, uh, for Kutuzov, it needs to be trading space for time and then using time to build your own force and and, uh, degrade the uh, opponent's force. Um, in 1805, however, he was not listened to. And in the book, I'm arguing that if Kutuzov had been listened to, if his repeated warnings as late as two hours before the Battle of Austerlitz, had been listened to, the battle would not have, have happened. The Allies, I'm absolutely convinced, would have won in 1805. And then the history of Europe would have been very, very different. As it was, the morons prevailed. Um, and and prevailed to the degree that when Kutuzov warned them that they will lose, uh, they questioned his manhood, his masculinity. Uh, you know, the, 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 um, there is a scene where Alexander kind of sarcastically tells him, "Well, you you were you know winning wars against Turks, but now that you're facing French, you are not as courageous anymore," and and not, uh, really pissed off Kutuzov. In 1812, the situation is different, and here. Uh, the emperor is not present with the army. The emperor gives Kutuzov the um, the command of all Russian forces. This is oftentimes forgotten: is that Kutuzov is not just the commander of the two armies that are together, right? But rather, he's the supreme commander of the Russian forces. So he exercises vast power, vast authority over all uh, field armies that Russia has um, organized against Napoleon, and. When Kutuzov was leaving St. Petersburg, Alex gave him uh, effectively a blank check for conducting the war as he saw fit with one proviso, and that is not to negotiate with Napoleon. Otherwise, Kutuzov was allowed to conduct war as he saw fit. And that's why the decisions that he made, such as to withdraw after Borodino, to surrender Moscow, to um, spend uh, over one month, you know, keeping the army at the fortified camps with very little like kind of in terms of prosecution or to show off. All that Alex accepted because he understood that overall this was a strategy that Kutuzov chose and that uh, will bring him benefits. It's surprisingly affordable too. connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P.
0: I've got a couple of questions off the back of that one, just to double back to what you're saying about the, um, the the respect that you had for Napoleon. Was that respect mutual? Or was Napoleon just kind of bullish about you know whether I, I face Barclay de Toley or Kutuzov? It doesn't really matter. Um,
1: uh, that part is a bit harder for me to answer because um, we know that Napoleon um, referred to Kutuzov as the fox, old fox of the north, and um, and that was a thing uh, uh, intended as as a as to to underscore that maybe the the practicality, the subtlety of, of the commander. But I don't think Napoleon really knew Kutuzov as a commander-in-chief or the commander the general, um uh that well. Um, they only met face-to-face, so to speak, uh, the field of Austerlitz. And as far as French army was concerned, of course, famously Kutuzov's nickname in the French army was the uh, the full yard of the Austrians, the runaway of Austrians, right? And so, when the news of Kutuzov's appointment in 1812 spread, there were the sarcastic remarks: "Well, he will just run away again." Um, Kutuzov. So, in that sense, he didn't have uh, uh, as as much of an experience in the with Kutuzov. He did know, however, about the uh, brilliant operation Kutuzov did against the Turks in 1811. Uh, he was well uh, well informed of what was what happened in the in the Dan- on the Danube. Uh, how Kutuzov outmaneuvered the Turks and, and um, effectively destroyed their main um, army. That should have given him a better sense of it. But again, it's not a first-hand account; it's, it's uh, through reports. So I don't, I don't have a good answer what Napoleon really thought of Kutuzov. I think
0: um, that's plenty good enough. Quite frankly,
1: um, I'll, I'll
0: take that one all day long. Um, The other is to just talk about personal risk involved here. And I don't mean in a battlefield context. I mean, in terms of he's given this task, Alexander himself says, well, I wash my hands of all of this. (laughs) So if it goes wrong, I mean, you were talking about how if Barclay had turned around and said, yep, we're abandoning Moscow, he'd have been shot for it. Mm -hmm. What are the personal risks here? Is Kutuzov effectively gambling with his life on making sure he gets this right by taking up this command?
1: To a certain degree, I think so. Um, first thing is that he he's in a bad bad health, and that health will ultimately can, uh, uh, claim his life. So going on this campaign, uh, he he understood that this will be a, a, a mammoth undertaking, and he's just gone through a year long campaign against the Turks, and he's he haven't had a chance to recover from that. So he, he, you know, he understands that there is a risk. Um, He also understands, especially on the eve of, on the surrender of Moscow, how dangerous um, the situation is in the Russian army, how vocal grumble, uh, grumbling is among the troops. Uh, But he is banking on, on that, uh, his ability to lead uh, on, on he's banking on that vision, on that image that he so carefully kind of maintained in the army as a, as a good Russian, you know, son of Russia, uh, aristocratic, thoroughly Orthodox man who will uh, make sure that the enemy is ultimately defeated. Uh, th- th- I think this is where Barclay de Tolly lacks the charisma. He lacks the uh, the reputation. He lacks the authenticity, so to speak, in the eyes of the of the Russian society. And Kutuzov um, has all of it. Um, there is a wonderful uh, passage in in the memoirs I'm translating. Uh, I've translated the 1812 part, but I'm translating the 1813 part now uh, by no, uh, Russian artilleryman uh, Ilya Radzitsky, and he says that only only Kutuzov, uh, the true son of Russia, uh, raised on the uh, on 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 her breast milk—that's the kind of lovely expression—could surrender Moscow and live. And I agree with it in that. Uh, with that perception, it, it's essentially a, 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 what allows Kutuzov to do this profound decision right, and then stay in power and leave was the reputation and the public image that was associated with him. Um, he's not necessarily the most brilliant military commander the Russian army has at this time, but in terms of his personality, social standing, political connections... Um, and his willingness to ignore vociferous criticism that he's subjected to and just keep doing what he believes is right that made him unique um, uh, let me add one more one more point um, of course all of this as you said is is unpopular and um and alexander repeatedly is asked to remove him from power um, and that is in in september october November of 1812 um but alexander is is facing two things one he doesn't want to make a decision that will be unpopular public in terms of public opinion uh and, and two uh, uh, as a way of kind of sh- uh, removing himself from from possible backlash is is by intru- uh, by consulting a council a state council made up of senior officers and political leaders uh who consistently consistently protect kutuzov and by saying that yes it is not You know he might not be doing something that is, uh, you know, glorious and exciting. There's no outright battles won, but what he's doing is, is right, Uh, and and you see that from these discussions in the council where every time an issue is raised of removing Kutuzov, the council says no, give him more time, give him time. But that then goes back to Kutuzov's ability to cultivate and maintain this relationship. That unlike Barclay, he has these connections. Right, he's part of that wider social. Uh, network uh, and that he's able then to pull on these connections to ensure that he stays in power. Um, for Barclay, there is a, uh, um, I think there is a famous uh, um, kind of passage in, in one of the letters uh, which talks about Barclay being having nothing to himself. You know, he comes from a Livonian nobility, but personally he's not wealthy. Uh, he doesn't have these good connections. And uh, um, um, I think one of the contemporaries says that if, if he was fired, right, if he was just fired from the military, uh, uh, he would die on the on the on the pile of shit because he has nothing else to his name, and and that that passage stuck to my uh, kind of stuck in my head because it goes to to the tragedy I think of this man, or at least in 1812, tragedy of Borghese Italy, what he wanted to accomplish and was unable to do. Uh, and then what Kutuzov did. Um, at least the, the the good news is that ultimately Barclay de Tolly leads the army to Paris, comes back a prince, comes back field marshal. Um, he is the second only, after Kutuzov, a man to have the highest set of Russian orders. And I think that is a as a due, due tribute to what what he had endured in 1812.
0: Which leads us on to one of the biggest questions that you can ask in frankly Napoleonic history. Well one of the the biggest, uh, perhaps not quite the biggest. Um when it comes to Napoleonic history, that the campaign, the strategy, granted it's it's not all as we've, you know, discussed. Um it's not all Kituzov. It is begun by by Barclay. Um Is it the right one? And and I know that sounds like an incredibly dumb question. My listeners will be screaming at me. What the hell are you talking about? Of course, it was the right one. They won in the end. (laughs) But but that's not obvious when you're doing that. All you know, if you're Barclay, if you're Kutuzov in 1812, is the usual way of fighting Napoleon, the the usual way we would fight a campaign of confronting you know, frontal assaults, all the rest of it. It doesn't work against this guy because we've tried it everybody's tried it and it's gone wrong. And so this sense of, particularly for Kutuzov, kind of fight the enemy almost where they aren't. Um, yes, okay, there are exceptions to that, you know, barring um, Napoleon's attempt to strike south, forcing him, kind of shepherding him almost back into the, the land that had been ravaged by the Grand Armée on its advance to Moscow it, is an exception to that. But generally speaking, the, the focus is, don't fight unless you've absolutely utterly got to and and all of the risks that's entailed and th- there's always this question and we talk a lot about um napoleon and the losses of the grand Armée, and yes they are catastrophic no question but the the losses aren't uh, much better for the russians certainly a bit better but not much better uh, and i think that's often forgotten you know we we emphasize the the loss of the grand army to the detriment of the Russian uh, forces. Is it the right strategy or is there this sense that actually something else could have been achieved perhaps more effectively in a shorter space of time and with less suffering for the Russian people, the Russian army had had a different course of action been taken?
1: That's a hard question to ask, and I think um, I mean you're right that, for example, when Kutuzov leaves the the great camp at Tarutino in October, he has about hundred twenty thousand men, and by December, he has uh, less than forty thousand. So th- that's a massive attrition that he suffers, and yes, many of most of them will get back into ranks in eighteen thirteen, but it, it that, in that span, uh, the army was almost <laughs> literally melting away. Um, the strategy, it, it's not just Barcai Gatoli who thinks that something different needs to be taken. It's its a group of, of officers, senior officers um, in, in the Ministry of War, that, that are paying very close attention to it. And what they do is, and, and, and that will be closer to your heart, is they're stunning in detail what Wellington has done in Spain and Portugal. Um, because... By 1812, by summer of 1812, Wellington is is, is quite successful, right? He's uh, repelled repeated French invasions of Portugal. He's inflicted major defeats on, on the French. He's about to inflict a new one at Salamanca. Um, so clearly it's working for the British. So why not use that in in, in, in Russia? And so what one of the striking things about uh, Russian discussions on the eve of the war in 1812 is not just the div- ver- uh, the diversity of the plans or memorandums that were submitted, some thirty three or thirty four of them, but rather the the fact that the vast majority of them drew inspiration from the British operations, and they were all uh, being uh, kind of inspired by Wellington's defensive campaigns. Um, even Scharnhorst, right, the great Prussian reformer. Uh, when he writes to the czar, and, and he has a significant sway over the czar, and Sean's horse famously urges him to wage defensive war like Wellington. So, in that sense, um, it is it is not surprising that they they were uh, convinced of the retreat. The question was for this for these officers: to what extent should we retreat? Um, Some of them wanted to retreat to the Western Dvina um, and their regroup. So Fool's strategy, which has been lambasted for the past 200 years, um, I think is not fully understood because the actual plan, the written down version of it was never found. So we don't even know exactly what Fool intended. I found in in one of the Prussian memoirs, a rather interesting reference where uh, Fool envisioned You know, the the war in in two stages and and retreating to Drisa camp um, on Dvina was just a kind of first stage of it. So anyways, uh, you know, this plan is not as simplistic as as we sometimes portray it. But but Kutuzov would have been one of the people who would have shared this need for um, a a defensive asymmetrical approach. In fact, I think this is where there is a bigger distinction between him and Barclay. They both agreed retreat is is the only sensible option. Uh, but uh, Barclay, while retreating, uh, is 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 not engaged in what we call asymmetrical warfare. Kutuzov, as soon as he gets um, to the army, is and what do I mean by this is he starts forming flying detachments. Um, so you know, two dozen of them or so will be formed, whose task it will be to conduct deep raids into the uh, enemy rear, uh, intercepting communications, supply lines. And ultimately, these flying detachment will wreak havoc on, 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 on the rare echelons of the Grand army. But it's right side side by side to it. Uh, Kutuzov is also very keen on waging what he calls little war. And that little war, uh, you know, in Russian it's Malaya, Vaina, but that term is, is is effectively guerrilla, right? In a sense of guerrilla that comes from Spain. Specifically, he wants to um, arm uh, populace and let populace assist the army in targeting isolated enemy forces, in conducting diversionary attacks, in in reducing overall effectiveness of the um, enemy. Even when he's told that the local landowners, uh, like him, right, he's a landowner, Uh, the landowners who are very concerned about arming their serfs, what if the serfs then turn and shoot us? Kutuzov says that's a minor issue. Uh, in fact, during the war, when you do have uh, occasions of peasant unrest against the landowners, Kutuzov diverts troops to crush those, uh, crush those um, uh, kind of areas of unrest, while arming or allowing the peasants to arm in others, and then continue to target. And that com- kind of mu- a multi-pronged approach, where retreat, uh, flying detachments. Uh, conducting this little war, um, all are aimed to create a larger strategy that uh, uh, that is a strategy of attrition, strategy of exhaustion. And we see Kutuzov admitting that mo- multiple times during the campaign while this is war is, is, is fought. Uh, in October, for example, Napoleon sends um, famously, he sends um, his ambassador or envoy, Loristan, to Kutuzov to negotiate, right? But one of the reasons for uh, for the negotiation uh, is K- Napoleon's complaints that what the way Russians are fighting is against the law, against this unwritten laws of war, and he's particularly upset about this little war, this popular violence. And Kutuzov listens to this and effectively tells Lauriston, "I don't even understand what you're complaining about. This is the war." <laughs> You, you'll, you'll have to deal with it. Um, and he says, well, I don't have a control of the people. I mean, they're upset. They're going to take arms. They're going to fight back. What do you want me to do? Tell them not to fight back? Uh, but of course, we know that behind the scenes, he's actually encouraging this. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm particularly interested, you know, kind of find that interesting. And then and then on another occasion, when he talks to a captured general, French general, he um, uh, he tells him, that he was surprised how all the little tricks that he used against Napoleon all worked, and what he means here is exactly this: is kind of you know resorting to different uh, manifestations of war or military uh, operations in order to sap the resources of, of Napoleon. And and in that conversation, Kutuzov then says that you, you really didn't have a. a you really couldn't have won," he tells this French officer, "because I was ready to continue to retreat and give space, to land, territory, in exchange for time, for as long as I needed." He says, "You know, I, I was ready to retreat for five hundred leagues. Uh, five hundred leagues is a huge distance, and and uh, and still be capable. Uh, you know, be still ready to surrender more land, because here, uh, I think Kutuzov has an understanding of strategy that." Uh, remarkable as it may sound, eludes Napoleon, and that is that Russia has something, a very valuable thing, that no other European power has, and that is space, land. That we can retreat for five, six, seven hundred miles and still be in the borderlands of the Russian Empire. Uh, uh, And Kutuzov is perfectly willing to utilize that.
0: It's staggering that that is the one thing that Napoleon can't sort of Well, well, perhaps I'm too harsh to say that he can't grasp it because, uh, and praise is about to come out of my mouth for Napoleon. Folks, suspend your disbelief. Napoleon, highly intelligent individual, obviously. Seasoned campaigner. Absolutely knows his way around a pencil when it comes to planning a campaign. Um, But that sense of, well, once I've taken Moscow, surely it's all over. No, because it's a different mentality and it's a staggering mentality. But it's a mentality that, sort of speaking to what you were saying earlier, unless you have embedded yourself, unless you are Russian or you've embedded yourself in the Russian culture, you can't appreciate that that sheer scale and that sense that actually there are more important things than a city. Um, but then perhaps that's a reflection of Napoleon being used to campaigning within Europe, where you know there are these cities within striking distance and as a result of that. Yeah,
1: you're absolutely right. Absolutely. And and, and what I find um, especially interesting in, in August of and September of 1812 when Kutuzov uh, takes charge, uh, he, most of the time when people kind of talk to him about taking charge of the army, he's not necessarily speaking of defeating Napoleon, but rather outsmarting him. And then there's this Russian word of abmanut, so it, it's like to deceive him, to mislead him. And what he meant here is that, uh, is, uh, on on a larger strategic level, to deceive him, to 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 outsmart him, uh, uh, that and, and there, uh, as you pointed out, Zach uh, Kutuzov's uh, decision to surrender Moscow is part and parcel of it, because here he understands that Napoleon is not just a military commander, but he's also a political leader and who needs political victory to end the war, and so he factually baits him. By giving Moscow, assuming, and that's a correct uh, assumption, um, although imagine what it took to to make the decision. He uh, he baits him by giving the former imperial capital, the historical capital, uh, on the assumption that Napoleon will try to seek peace while in Moscow. And he's absolutely right. I mean, Napoleon spends 35 days stuck in the city, ruined city, burned city trying to find a solution to the political solution to the war, which Kutuzov knew will not happen. In fact, in the book, I'm I'm pointing out that he met with Lauriston in October, and then he met again another uh, French envoy that Napoleon sent in direct contravention uh, of uh, imperial orders not to negotiate because he wanted Napoleon to be on the impression that Russians are willing to negotiate. <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. um, uh, uh, That's where I, I I have a newly acquired respect for Kutuzov, because I think previously I had a more Tolstoyan vision of him, but I, I see a, a far greater subtlety to what he had done.
0: It's just a genius move, isn't it? It's just a, the ultimate case of cat playing with mouse in that situation and we're used to it being the other way around right that napoleon's the cat and the other european powers are the mouse but actually just toying with him knowing that guy's insecurities and his needs as you say Mm -hmm. he needs a political solution but that knowledge that there's no political solution coming son you know (laughs) this this ain't (laughs) happening
1: but i'm not going to tell
0: you that i'm going to make you sit there and wait and suffer for it in the longer term just so (laughs) clever (laughs) there's one other thing about strategy that i do want to ask and i'm conscious of time and and the fact that we could sit here and talk all night about this happily um but you're a busy individual and you've got a life to be getting on with um so are you my friend you are you (laughs) you talked about the british and the the strategy of kutuzov which is we need to make sure that actually this outcome is more favorable for russia and therefore not utterly obliterating napoleon is more beneficial to Russia in the longer term. Otherwise, the British end up winning the longer term power struggle. Do the British know about that plan? Obviously, everybody's got their spies (laughs) everywhere. But normally, the (laughs) two powers are allies. You kind of wonder how Cabinet would have reacted if somebody had sort of quietly had a word in their ear and said, yeah, you do realise that Ketutov is deliberately playing this. So Um, that we're not going to benefit in the longer term.
1: They, to a certain degree, they were. Certainly, um, a a British uh, envoy uh, is aware of it. And he knows it because there is a British commissioner to the Russian army, um, uh, Sir Wilson, uh, Robert Wilson, uh, who is absolutely savaging when it comes to... to, uh, to Kutuzov, I mean, I've read his letters and I've read his di- journal, and he's just gleeful uh, every time something happens to Kutuzov. Uh, uh, in 1813, when Kutuzov gets sick, he has this sarcastic remark like, "That's very opportunistic, like right? getting sick right before the battle." <laughs> uh, and even later, when Kutuzov dies, uh, it's Wilson who says, "He damn it, he died very opportunely for his fame. He didn't have to be defeated by Kutuzov." <laughs> But the reason why uh, Wilson is so sarcastic about it all is because he had to deal with Kutuzov through uh, October, November, December of 1812. And it was a very uh, unpleasant experience for him. Um, every time Wilson urged Kutuzov to commit larger share of army in, in battle, and that would be at Malaria Slavits in October, at Vyazma in November, then two weeks later at at Krasny, um, Kutuzov brushed him off, says no. And his excuse would be twofold. One, uh, Kutuzov will say that we are losing a lot of men. We've, you know, sick, wounded, um, uh, result of attrition, explosion of cold, all of this, um, Kutuzov argued that they just needed to spare the men. But two, and this is where on several occasions Kutuzov rather forcefully expresses himself, he uh, tells um, Wilson directly, flat out, that you are a British officer. What you want is a British interest. I have, he says, no interest to sacrifice a single Russian officer, soldier to achieve goals of a foreign power. And he tells him that he doesn't see Napoleon's fall as fulfilling Russian interests, because he already at this stage, Kutuzov sees that Britain as an economic powerhouse, that the collapse of the Napoleonic empire will open up many elements of Europe or many parts of Europe to that economic uh, dominance. And he has no interest in seeing that. And there is a fascinating um, discussion uh, Kutuzov has with Benningsen. Benningsen is a Russian general, but of course he was born and raised in Hanover. we all know the connection between Hanover and uh, Britain. Uh, and uh, when Benningsen confronted Kutuzov about this, kind of not committing enough force to destroy Napoleon, Kutuzov famously snaps back to him and says, um, we will never come to an agreement. You are Hanoverian, and you are thinking only of English benefit. While to me, and uh, there's this uh, wonderful quote, uh, Kutuzov says, while to me, if that island sinks to the bottom of the sea, I wouldn't even shed a tear. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Ouch indeed. <laughs> um, and so that's where he remains kind of true to his strategy. Now, I got a problem, of course, with this strategy is that because of this strategy, um, Napoleon escapes at Berezina. Because of that strategy, we had two years of bloodshed and hundreds of thousands of lives lost. Now, was Kutuzov thinking down the road that, hey, we're going to take us all the way marching to Paris and killing thousands and thousands of people to overthrow this? Or was he hoping that after Napoleon is driven out of Russia, that there will be some political compromise uh, reached between Russia and France over dividing spheres of influence, coming to a certain understanding. Uh, Because when he indeed reached the border, Kutuzov wanted to consolidate Russian uh, influence in the borderlands. And this will be especially on the Polish side of it. But he was not interested in leading the wars of liberation in Germany. He didn't think that was Russian responsibility Um, and is certainly not helping the British. Um, So I think this is where it's it's a little bit uh, unclear still to me how he envisioned the post eighteen uh, twelve, I am more leaning to see him uh, envisioning a political compromise found with Napoleon that will account better for Russian presence in Europe, but will still maintain some sort of empire. And the last element here is that uh, Kutuzov envisioned uh, Napoleon as as a as a figure who can contain revolutionary impulses. And that's also an important, uh, I think, consideration. Uh, what if empire collapses and France is be again uh, the source of revolutionary turmoil? Are we going to continue fighting another twenty, you know, 15, 20 years? Because it took us a, a long while to bring that revolutionary threat under control. Napoleon, for all you know, for better or worse, is the very thing that put the genie back in the bottle. Uh, maybe we should keep him on, uh, in, in power it's
0: fascinating it's another one where i want to do a whole episode just on that one topic and i can't um well i we can further down the line but that's that's not the 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 matter before us today um i i suppose sadly we need to start sort of thinking about wrapping this up so i'm gonna throw a a big sort of penultimate question out there which is quite simply how is he remembered in russia obviously that's a a thing that changes with the passage of time that goes without saying um and lord knows how he's remembered in russia at this precise moment in time when there is so much uh going on in in russia um but just what's your kind of general sense of if you like different schools of thought on the guy
1: oh yes um actually to a certain degree we do know um how he's perceived uh, in russia and uh, there are Couple of ways we can we can kind of glean that. One is the polls. Um, There are opinion polls that are conducted in Russia, and I don't know if we have if you have any like that in Britain. But uh, those polls oftentimes ask people about their historical knowledge perceptions. And I start the biography this book by discussing these polls and showing that that to the vast majority of the respondents in those polls, Kutuzov ranks in top three of uh, best ever Russian generals uh, with Suvorov and Zhukov, uh, the, the Soviet commander-in-chief um, being next to him. And he is ranked as the most uh, symbolic 19th century figure of Russia, and he is uh, in top 20 world historical figures. In fact, he is ranked higher than Newton. <laughs> Which, it's an interesting uh, uh, kind of ranking. Anyways, so he, he's repeatedly is perceived to be uh, that the symbolical figures. That's one way. The second is, and that's where we see a weaponization of history within Russia that has been going on for the past two, two decades, uh, Putin's government is very keen on using the historical parallels, using the historical analogies, by to bolster its own standing. And I want to show you one um, one image that a friend of mine just sent me, and you can you can see it right there. This is a uh, a banner that was unveiled just two weeks ago for this uh, commemoration of Borodino, and what you see here is the uh, Bagration. This is one of the rebel commanders from Ukraine, a pro-Russian rebel commander uh, who's been killed. This is the lady, uh, you've seen her probably, the conservative uh, kind of ideologue who was assassinated in Moscow just a couple of, what, three weeks ago. And guess who is behind leading them all, right? It's Kutuzov. And to me, this is kind of historical memory with the modern-day imperial ideological, right, this neo neo-imperial uh, um, aspirations that are all encapsulated in one banner in which Kutuzov is giving a prime spot. So that's where he stands here. Um, there is a historical revisionism going on in Russia. There are wonderful his- Russian historians who've tried to point out the problems with the popular perceptions of Kutuzov. But as you pointed out in the very beginning of this podcast, Right. Those books are not as widely read. <laughs> right. We might we are like stuck in like dwarves in the in the mine, chipping away at the mountain, but from the outside perspective, the mountain's still there.
0: The mountain is still there, but um I think a certain Alexander McBrodsey has taken a substantial chunk out of it <laughs> uh, with, with the, the latest effort. Um I want to wrap this up with a quick fire round, uh, if you don't mind, just sort of in, in 30 seconds or less. I won't time you because I'm just such a generous podcast host that I, I won't break out the stopwatch here. You can thank <laughs> me later. Um, but I, I think this could end up being quite a fun way to, to wrap this up. So what's the funniest anecdote you came across about him?
1: I think my uh, favorite one is uh, the one that we've discussed in the earlier episode. When uh, in eighteen o five, when he's uh, at Branau, uh unaware that Napoleon has just wiped out the Austrian army, and uh, uh, he sees uh, Austrian General Right Mac stop by with a wrapped hat bandaged, and Mac is tired and exhausted, and uh, Kutuzov wants to get information out of him and. Mac is not as as keen on revealing it, so Kutuzov plies him with alcohol. He's like, "Drink!" <laughs> right? Oh, and here's the second one, and please tell me more. And Mac gets relaxed. He's kind of chucks it down. The alcohol starts, you know, his tongue loosens up, and he starts talking more freely. And he reveals rather in, you know sensitive information, which Kutuzov gets more excited. So he gives him more drinks. And then right next, uh, next uh, stands an Austrian officer who is. Is mimicking, is gesticulating to Mac to shut up. (laughs) Shut up. You're talking too much. And I think that kind of encapsulates Kutuzov's subtlety and also his willingness to merrymaking, right? (laughs) Uh, To drink uh, while while extracting information.
0: A Russian general who can drink another commander under the table, (laughs) quite an asset. (laughs) Um, What was his biggest failing then?
1: His biggest failing, maybe, uh, um, at the character, I think that the the lack of the maybe moral fiber (laughs) on many occasions, uh, his willingness to debase himself, um, to to brew that infamous coffee and serve it to to the empress's lover, I think those are among his biggest failings. Um, I I would also, you know, with a proviso, maybe with a a reservation, also say that. His unwillingness to to bring an end to the war in 1812 by uh, by uh, you know, defeating Napoleon, understandable as, as it may sound, part of it to me, I think is the overall a failure because it, it prolonged the war for for two more years. Uh, and and I think one more is that you know in in that context, his willingness to shift blame on others, especially what he did to his fellow commander. Um, Chichagov, uh, who was ultimately blamed for letting Napoleon out, when Kutuzov certainly bears the, the fault for it, um, also kind of goes to the to that um, to that list of failings.
0: What about his most significant success?
1: 1812, uh, the first, you know, the the uh, August to I guess November of it, when he uh, was the figure most needed. You know, he was the right figure at the right time at the right place. Uh, as, we, as I pointed out, he, he brought the elements that were needed to have, maybe not the most brilliant and imaginative commander in chief, but certainly the one who could un, who could see the political, strategic, operational uh, strategy and then pursue it irrespective of uh, of what was said about him, irrespective of the uh, vociferous criticisms that he was subjected to, you know, because he believed that ultimately that was the right way. To do it,
0: and finally, what do you think Kachizov would have considered to have been his most important legacy?
1: Um, Napoleon's defeat in Russia, I think, by far, um, because um, it, it, as I as I note in 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 the in the book and in in the beginning of it, it is hard for us maybe to un- understand what this war meant to the generation of of the Russians living in the nineteenth century. This is really the conflict that. Uh, allows Russia to find, find its, you know, quotation, historical mission, right? The this, this sense of what, what are we for? what What's our destiny? What's our place in world history? And uh, it is in the wake of this defeat, and especially with the Russian armies bringing the, uh, the strategy all the way to fruition in 1814, that Russia emerges as the great power. Right? Until now, it is a power, but not necessarily the one that, other great powers listen to or, 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 or uh, certainly take into consideration its needs. But after 1815, Russian Empire is there and it's it, it has proven its worth. It's proven its ability to project its power very forcefully so. And, and Kutuzov is, is part of it. In fact, one of my favorite uh, illustrations in the book is a miniature uh, that I found at an auction which shows uh, three three individuals um, on on this on this little miniature and, and it's right here, uh, and you see Kutuzov, Wellington, and Blucher, and the inscription on it says, "What was begun by Russian commander in 1812 was completed by the victors of Belle Alliance in 1815." And I think that's where uh, you know he would have he would have certainly be Uh, uh, would have agreed with that is that the the ball started rolling in 1812 and Kutuzov gave a a, a big nudge to it. Um,
0: Alex it's been a spectacular 100 minutes of interviewing without any break just full throttle from start to finish it was absolutely worth the wait. Folks if you're not inspired by that passion I, I've got nothing else to offer you. I'm really sorry. Um, the, the man has tired me <laughs> out. Uh, and all I've had to do is ask the questions. Um, let's and be it's, honest. Listen,
1: the book is only half the length of War and Peace. That's there you what go.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you get all the good stuff
0: in half the length. <laughs> so surely that's it's a given that you've got to buy it, people. So Kutuzov, A Life in War and Peace, it's available from Oxford University Press. It's one of those university press books that's at a reasonable price. So don't think, oh, university press, therefore I can't afford it. No, you can afford it. And what you can also afford is the Napoleonic Wars, A Global History, which I am ashamed to say, it took me a while to pick that thing up and start reading it. And having started to do so, once you do, you absolutely understand what all the fuss is about, all right? People go buy both of them. From Oxford University Press website. Whilst you're on a roll, if you're fortunate enough to have the um, the funds to do so, Confronting Napoleon volumes one and two were published by hellion.co.uk. Go have a look at those. Um, you can kind of tell I'm a bit of a fan. So it's been an utter joy, Alex. Thank you so much for your time. Please come back at some point soon. We could easily do a whole Russia series. Um, we'll We'll see where we go on that. Um, but it's, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you so thank much.
1: You. Thank you, Zach. This has been a treat uh, and I do appreciate the opportunity to discuss. Um, look forward to your next episode.
0: A huge thank you as ever to my Patreon supporters, my Emperor Level patrons, Mark Stoose, JC Kaiser and Todd and Laird Campbell. My Marshall patrons, Matt Bone, Marcus Cribb, Rachel Stark, Roy Muir, Liam Telfer, Ger Brown and Graham Swidenbank. My Commander Patrons, John Haynes, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Andy Meekin, Michael Guest and Ross Flowers. And my mentioned in Dispatches Patrons, Noah Fink, Andrew Wright, David Maxwell, M. Duck, Anthony Gumbau, Chris Pramus, Mars Reedy, Alexandra Leon, Alistair campbell Grieve, Beatrice de Graf, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Coss, Bruins Girl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lim Dawson, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Ryan Diamond, Rob Coughlin, Mark Trowbridge, Nick Overland, Stephen Colson, Graham Goodwin, Graham Spicer, Keyes Bishop and David Priest. I'll be back very soon but until then I'm Zach White, this has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves my friends, stay well, stay safe